the top players and legends to the very best analysts around the world from wherever the beautiful game is played. This is BTP. Now, we're talking football. Yes, hello folks, welcome to Beyond the Pitch, a very special edition of Beyond the Pitch. I'm your host, Zoe Stroberg, and joining me tonight, regular co-host here tonight, Colin Fiden, and delighted to be joined here with the magnificent individual called Dami McCamoli, who of course, very familiar to English football fans and football fans around the world, who has served some of the most prestigious positions in some of the world's biggest football clubs, notably Arsenal, Monaco, Liverpool, Spurs, Fenerbahce, all across the world. Um, in many different roles, but primarily a director of football role, a role that gets a lot of discussion today. So first of all, let me welcome Damien to the show. Damien, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure, believe me. Um, before we get into your time at these particular football clubs, there's a lot of discussion, Damien, about what a director of football actually is, what the job entails, what is what, what is a director of football today? Tell me what exactly a director of football is. Um, I think it's fair to say that he does everything the, the, the head coach or the manager doesn't do. So apart from picking the team uh, and taking the play, taking the training sessions uh, and maybe you know dealing day to day with injuries and stuff like that, uh, and with the preparation of the games, uh, he does pretty much everything else. So it very much depends on the individual and the club as well. Um, and the job description, but most of the time the director of football will cover areas such as recruitment, uh, players' recruitment, staff recruitment on the performance side, uh, players' contract negotiations. Depending on the club, he will he will he will select and pick the manager, or the head coach, or he will make recommendations to the board about about names for that position. Um, is so in charge of most of the time of all the scouting process uh, and all the performance side as well of the football club, which you know covers uh, fitness, sports science, medical, sports psychology. If there is uh, such, if there are there is such things, um, performance analysis, uh, data. Um, what else can I think of? Mm. Um, uh, also, in some of my roles, I, I, I was also managing the facility, the training facility, uh, or overseeing the training facility if there was a facility manager. Um, so there, there are a lot of aspects of the role, but really, so, some directors of football are purely focusing on recruitment. Some are mm-hmm. uh, recruit, re- focusing more on management of the football club. Uh, but broadly speaking, that's more or less the, the, the job spec I've just given you. Just how important is it to have a strong working relationship with the manager of the or the head coach when you are in that role as director of football? Uh, it is. I mean, look, the more aligned those two people are and the better it is, and they need to be aligned in a bit of a lot of different aspects. Uh, they need to be aligned into the culture of the club uh, and what the club stands for. They need to be aligned on the business model on the club on transfers. So if you have a manager who comes in and say, you know, I want to win now and I don't care how much we spend or how old the players are, 
and 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 the director of football is saying when actually uh, the board the board's instruction is to sign players who are under 25 and not to sign players who are too expensive, then there are issues. Uh, I think they also need to be aligned in terms of, of playing style. Um, and that's why it's important that the, the director of football has got an, an input to say, if not a final say in the, in the recruitment, in the decision-making process of recruiting the manager, because um, the manager needs to, to feed the, uh, the club's DNA, the club's culture, mm-hmm. the club's identity, uh, which usually is, is represented by, by the director of football. So the alignment between the two is crucial. Over a short period of time, you've, I've seen clubs where there was no alignment or not enough alignment, and sometimes it works, but usually it works only over a short period of time. It doesn't work over a long time. We saw what happened with Milan. They were going to bring in Ralph Ranjak to do something similar. Uh, it's a lot of power at a football club. The question I have, I mean, is it possible for top clubs today? We see a lot of this talk about Manchester United as well. Uh, is it possible for top clubs these days to survive and be successful without a director of football? No, I think it's almost impossible, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the job is so challenging and running football clubs nowadays nowadays is, is so difficult. It, it has become so difficult uh, that if you are if there is only a manager and let's say a chief executive, I think it becomes extremely challenging. Um, you, so the answer, I mean, the short answer is for me is no, um, unless you, there can be a situation where. You know, if you have the, all the money in the world, and right. and and then you, you you can buy your way through success, or you can buy, sorry, you, yeah, you can buy sure. your way through success. So Real Madrid don't have direct football, uh, and they've got a direct relationship. You know, they make the decision between three people: the manager, uh, the chief executive, and the chairman. Uh, obviously, that's working, but they are Real Madrid. You know, and all the other clubs, if you look around the world, the Europe that are functioning well, uh, are, are all, all, all of them have got direct football. One of the, the crucial aspects you've, you've talked about there, and I think it's the, the one that resonates with most fans when it comes to director of football, is, is in relation to recruitment. Many fans think transfers happen in the blink of an eye because, especially here in the UK, we're used to massive coverage around transfer deadline day. It's sort of ingrained in the culture here. However, in your vast experience, Damien, how long does a transfer naturally take to conclude? So, if you if if we if we start from the first day of the where the, the first time the player has been seen by the, the scouts or the recruitment guys, whether it's te- technical scouts, what we call technical scouts, or the ones who work. Uh, you know, on, on videos, then we'll pass on the information to the scouts who are going to watch the player uh, live, etc. So sometimes it's, it's, I mean, it can take years. You know, it can literally take take years because the player is not available in the first place, or because the the the, the club is not convinced that he's ready to, for the level, so they are going to following him up for another season to see how he does. Um, so it's a very long. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a it's a very long process, and then 
through the point where you know you, the club decides to go for the player and then start negotiating with the selling club, start negotiating with the agent, spend time to to meet with the player. Um, so it, it can actually take, as I said, it can actually take years, uh, minimum, I will say weeks, if not months. Sometimes, uh, as you, you just mentioned, it happened that, you know, a deal, a deal, a deal come through uh, on, on deadline day. Uh, but most of the time, this player will not be a known you know, to the scouting mm-hmm. department or to the manager of the club or to the director of football. So a player becomes available or and he was not expected to be available or the club has got to sell a player that he didn't want to sell and suddenly he's in need of a player, so he's looking around. What have we seen during the season? You know, you're speaking to your scouts, uh, send me list, who do we go for? But those re- really are exceptions. The proper recruitment process, as I said, Usually, I will say, goes from maybe on a normal season, probably from September until the the day the transfer uh, comes to an end, which is or to a conclusion, which will be sometime in June or July or August of the following year. What usually, in consecutive order, is it usually like the bid goes into the club as the last part? And we know there's rules, but obviously lots of clubs don't pay attention to the rules. They talk to the player, they talk to the agent, (laughs) then they find out, okay, usually through intermediaries. uh, Because a lot of times we'll see things like, uh, I I use Jadon Sancho as an example. Uh, Jadon Sancho, um, a bid has not been lodged yet from Manchester United to Borussia Dortmund. But is that often the last part of the deal to happen, or is that the first? It's difficult. I mean, there, there is no rule, really. I mean, uh, I mean, there, there are rules. What I mean is, there, there is no rule in a way, sure. in a way that the, every option works. So sometimes, um, sometimes you go directly to the selling club, try to agree a deal, and then you go and speak to the player. Sometimes the agents come to you. And say, well, are you looking for, you know, I'm looking for a goalkeeper where my plans might be available. So now you start taking an interest in it. And the agent is trying to get to guess how much the selling club will want. Um, so it, it, there are so many different uh, ways for transfer to happen that it's, it's difficult to give you a precise idea. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will say most of the time, uh, a club will try to understand if the player wants to come before yeah. a buying club will try to understand if a target is likely to come or is willing to come before approaching the selling club. Yeah. One of the and things that will... in England in England it's a little bit different because the rules, you know, the Premier League are right. I've got implemented some rules that are very strict and usually the clubs are obeying by those rules. But in Europe or South America, it's very different. (laughs) One of the things that I want to to touch on with you, Damien, is the fact that you started out as a coach at Monaco. How did you then transition into the scouting side of football and and obviously move to Arsenal as well? I never planned for it to start with, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) My dream when I was a kid, my dream was to be a youth coach. You know, mm. I thought I thought it was the best job in the world, and I still think to this day, being a youth coach in a very good academy is probably the best job in football, um, because there is no money involved, there is no pressure. Yeah. You just you don't have to worry about the results at the weekend. 
you can work individually on the players, you can get into great detail with the players, uh, you can get to know him personally, you can get to know his parents, his girlfriend, if he has, you know. So it, it's a great job. And that, that, that's the only thing I wanted to do when, when, I, I, when I grew up, first of all, and then when I started to get my coaching badges. But what happened is when I was in, in, uh, in Japan, I was coaching after Monaco, I went to Japan. Mm-hmm. And then Arsene Wenger uh, joined, uh, left Japan and he, he joined Arsenal. Um, and I went to see him and he said, he said, he introduced me to the chief scout, Steve Rowley at the time, uh, Arsenal. And they both asked me, they said, could you watch games in France for us? I said, what does it mean? Where could you scout in France for us? I said, okay, what does a scout do? Just go to, the, just go to a game and send us a report and we'll, 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 we'll help you develop along the way. Um, so my first game, you know, my first game was um, Chateau Le Havre, which I will always remember, uh, in the in you know in the middle of France. Um, and then I got there, and then Steve called me after the game. He said, "What do you think about the player?" I told him, and then he said, "He said, could you feel the form with the report?" So the report had different criteria. You know, you had to do a report on the technical aspect, tactical aspect, physical aspect, mental aspect. And then a, a, a final recommendation. Uh, and to this day, I can still you see those forms that we 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 were using Arsenal. I've, I've filled in you know thousands of them. Um, and and slowly, I think they tested me. Arsenal and, and Tivoli tested me. Uh, and then I started to like it. And uh, after France, I started to go abroad and scout you know all over the world. Mm-hmm. And that's really how to be, I became a scout. So there was no no plan for it. Um, I think the big advantage I had is I was, you know, I, I had such a close relationship with Arsene Wenger because I saw him work at Monaco. I, I, I knew him, you know, when I was a, a youth player at Monaco and then I, I started to spend time with him and see how he was working when I became a youth coach in Monaco and then I, I visited him in Japan as well. Uh, and I think I knew him so well and I knew what he was looking for in a player uh, so precisely, very precisely, that it kind of gave me a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I saw a player, most of the time, I knew if he would fit Arsene's view, Arsene's playing style or not. So that gave me a, that gave me a massive head start in my scouting uh, career. You obviously scouted some fantastic players. Arsene Wenger was probably responsible for one of the biggest shifts in English football towards becoming much more continental and technical. Um, tell me, Damien, what were some of the players that you almost signed for Arsenal that you just missed out on? Any big <laughs> names? <laughs> no, I, I, will, I will not talk about that. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> I know my mistakes. I know the mistake. Not a mistake. You know, I try this... to. I always think about identifying mis- mistakes. I always review what we do or what I do. Whether the players join in and it's a mistake. Whether the players join in and it's a success. I think trying to understand success is key into a high-level sport. Um, and if I missed out on a player because I didn't think he was good enough and he's a success somewhere else, then I also look at it. And also very important, if we miss out on the player that we wanted, but he decided to go to another club or or somebody paid more than us, and he fails, then I also want to understand why we wanted this player who has become a failure at the club he, 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 he joined in the end. 
yeah. so reviewing reviewing our performances, success, failures, etc. is is very important in the scouting process. Uh-huh. Um, but I wouldn't want to go into details. Maybe you know, in when I retire in about thirty <laughs> years, I'll, I'll open up. Yeah. yeah I, I, there was more along at least what I was asking. It, it didn't mean, maybe I phrased the question wrong. Not so much a mistake, uh, just someone that you looked at, saw a magnificent talent, and for no reason, no no fault of your own or for Arsenal's or for anyone else's, he ended up going somewhere else. Obviously, we hear Arsene talk about this oh, a lot. The biggest, of, uh, the biggest, the biggest yeah. regret that Arsene has got, and I have, and probably everyone Arsene all the time, is Cristiano Ronaldo. Of course. Uh, because uh, I saw him in an under-15 tournament in the, in in Brittany in France. Uh, I was the only scout at, at halftime of the game. I went absolutely crazy uh, mm. when I saw him. I, I, I called my contact in Portugal after the game. I had all the information about him, um, and then as things developed, he came to the training ground a couple of times, um, but we couldn't afford it. Yeah. We just couldn't afford him because we were building Arsenal were building a stadium at the time, uh, so we couldn't make the deal happen, and that, that's probably the, the biggest regret. Sure. One of the players that and you we did, did everything that we could. I mean, sorry, what was that? We did everything we could. Yeah, but I said we did everything we could. It's just that we couldn't afford it. Yeah, listen, sometimes that happens, and I, I, Ronaldo himself mentioned that as well. You know, I mean, you could, you, mm-hmm. no fault of your own, and every football club mm-hmm. has these near misses where they almost got a guy. Uh, one of the ones that I always question, sorry, Callum, was Zinedine Zidane when he was leaving Bordeaux. Um, leaving around about that time, and if I remember correctly, he was linked with a number of clubs in England. And I always wondered why he never ended up at Arsenal at that time, given that Arsenal had such a strong French connection at that time. I think he was. I think he moved to Juventus before Arsenal joined Arsenal. Oh, was it? I thought it was right, but uh, oh, okay. It's not. It's not. That I think. It's, I'm. I'm. I'm pretty sure. Okay. And I, I definitely, when I started working for Arsenal, he was already at Juventus. Gotcha. Go ahead, Colin. One of the players that you, you did play a part in signing was, was Colo Touré and the reason I want to ask you about Colo is because when you look at his career he, he was very successful at Arsenal, Manchester City and then also finished up with, with Liverpool and Celtic so considering where you took him from to where he ended up throughout his career how how much pride do you look back on spotting him with? Not much to be honest with you I don't take any personal pride to it I've, I've got I'm very proud of what he's achieved as a person as, as a player a lot more than you know me looking considering to take some of his of the success which I, I will not I will not these uh, I, I, I definitely I will not try to uh, to take um, the, the key with Tolo the key with Tolo was three things the first one is at the time, Arsenal had a, had a partnership with an academy in, in Ivory Coast, in Abidjan, and I was in charge of dealing with this partnership. So I was going there a, a few times a year. So that, that allowed us to know Polo better than probably other clubs. The second aspect is, well, because, as I told you when we started, because I knew I, know, I knew Arsene by heart and what he was looking in a player, um, when... I remember I went to see him play with the national team 
and it was a strange game. At the time, you could, see, you know, there was no internet, FIFA international uh, weeks, and it was very different to what the the international fixtures calendar was a bit chaotic. And for some reasons, Monaco played against Ivory Coast. Right, there was a friendly game which you will never see nowadays between a club and a national team. And it was, I think, his first game with the national team. And he was up against Oliver Birov, who was playing for Monaco, big, you know, very powerful striker. Yeah. He's now the, the the head of the uh, German national team. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I thought his attitude, Colo's attitude, aggression, commitment, desire not to concede the goal, not accepting to, to be beaten on any challenge by Birov, who was a very good player at the time. I, I thought, I thought. He showed things from a mental perspective that were outstanding, and I knew he could play. I knew he could play because I've seen him, you know, doing it in Ivory Coast. I knew he was quick. I knew he was powerful. I knew he had great feet. But that attitude he showed during that game, playing in such difficult environments against a very good striker, made me think there is something there. And I remember calling Arsene after the game and said, I think we should seriously look at him. There is a long way to go, but with his attitude, from the mental aspect, and with his fitness, physical skill and, and technical skills and ability to play from the back, he could really become an asset. So, and the third aspect, so you've got, okay, I played some part of it in saying, you know, we, we should consider him. Then you've got this, the bigger aspect, much bigger aspect, of his success, rather than scouting, is, is the player's attitude and the player's desire to improve on a day-to-day. And the third aspect is is, uh, is Arsenal coaching at the time, and Arsene Wenger coaching at the time and ability to develop the player. So, you know, on a scale of one to hundred, if you are if you ask me what part scouting played into Colo Touri's career, I would say ten percent. The red is. The rest is him, his desire to succeed, and the ability of Arsene Wenger and his coaches to develop him as a player. And the other example, uh, similar example, is Van Persie. So Robin yeah. Van Persie was sub for Feyenoord, and he was, you know, he was either not playing or we, we went to see him play with Steve Rowley, the Chiefs car. He was getting sent off. He was kicking people. Some, you know, sometimes he was kicking, starting fights. On the pitch, when we were watching him with the with the reserve, uh, you know, I remember saying all, reserves against Ajax reserve. He started the fight, and then the fans jumped on the pitch, etc., etc. I remember going and watching him in Utrecht on a Sunday afternoon, early afternoon. He got sent off after five minutes. So pretty much everyone was telling us not to sign him. Feyenoord was so desperate to move him on that we did the deal in April and they said for the following season and they say you can have it now just take him <laughs> just take him no. well, we said but the season only starts on the 1st of July it doesn't matter just take him and then Arsene was telling us incredible and we had we had this alignment between Steve Arsene Sivroli Arsene and I where we were so aligned that Arsene trusted us and we were saying to Arsene we need to sign this kid we need to sign this kid you have to trust us we need to sign this kid and Arsene was saying, he doesn't even play Feyenoord. And I remember making a mistake and saying to Arsene, but the manager should be playing him. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And Arsene killed me. He said, don't, don't ever 
talk about manager at least you need to respect people and that was a big lesson actually Interesting. Um, anyway to cut a very long story short in the end we got him he came and so the success is not Steve Rowley and Damien Comoli scouting the success is Arsene Wenger believed in our judgment mm-hmm. the player again had this fantastic skill physically he was a monster but he had the desire to succeed and to improve and to be, you know, better and better every day. And then you've got Arsene's coaching that developed him into one of the best players the, of the world at the time. So again, on the scale of zero to 100, what scouting into the success of Robin Van Persie? Maybe 10%. Mm. Yeah, and, and just to, to clarify my previous question, I mean, the reason I asked that is Zizou went to uh, Juventus in 86, and I remember reading a clip that... Uh, Blackburn were interested in him, and Jack Walker said, "Why do you need Zidane when you've got Tim Sherwood?" Uh, and uh, Barry Silkman, who also said he was offered to Newcastle for 1.2 million, they scouted him and thought he wasn't good enough, which uh, just shows you, um, you know, scouting sometimes it, it could go wrong. It's 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 a hard job, so cool. exceptional that you spotted Van Persie. You go to Spurs in 2005. Of course, you, I believe you were also responsible for Modric and Berbatov, some of Spurs' best players, uh, fantastic talents. But what was the job you were brought in to do at Spurs? What, 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 sorry? What was the job you were brought in to do at Tottenham? What was your agreement? What were you asked to it's do? Very much, it's very much the idea was to say, uh, we, need to, we need to take that club into Europe on a, on a, on a regular basis. Uh, we need to build new facilities. We need a new training ground. We need a new stadium. Obviously, I, you know, I was not involved into the stadium uh, thing, but I was very much involved into, uh, you know, with Daniel Levy into creating the, the the current training ground, which is probably the, the best in the world. Um, it was to first, you know, get into top five, top six. Secondly, second stage, get into top four. And how do we break to top four? All this with less money than the other clubs, less resources, smaller wage bill, smaller stadium uh, than any of, any of the top four at the time, uh, especially, uh, you know, also now moving to the Emirates as well uh, from Highbury. Um, and with signing young players and trying to focus on young British talent. So that was the, that was the, the, the that, that, that's what I've, I was asked to do by the board, you know, and I remember sitting into my car and thinking, how oh, the hell am I going to do this? <laughs> um, <but laughs> luckily, luckily, I got great support from the board and, and we had some early success, you know, we won a trophy uh, and then we put the club on the path to, to become a Champions League club. Uh, so that was the idea. We just, Daniel and I and the board were kind of obsessed into making the, the the club again a force, a driving force in Europe, a driving force in the in the Premier League, a club that mattered, uh in the and that was relevant again in the Premier League at at, at well, it used to be, you know, in the sixties, seventies and and eighties, uh, and, and a bit of the early nineties. Uh that, that that was the thinking. Um what was challenging but incredibly interesting and fascinating was the fact that we had to do all this with, uh, you know, very small resources compared to the other big clubs. Um, 
and it was an incredible experience. At Tottenham, for me, is, is a unique club in the sense that Daniel Levy's considered to be one of the most powerful men in football and he runs his club accordingly. Just how important is it to have a good working relationship with him and how close were you with Daniel when you were at Tottenham? Uh, well, I think a very close relationship with your chairman when you are sporting director is key. Uh, and I, I think the reason I left the club or I was uh, I was asked to, left, to leave the club is because I didn't look after the, the, this relationship the way I should have, um, because when things become, you know, when things become a bit more difficult through a season or through some patches of some of a season, that's where you need to be perfectly aligned with the chairman and and you need to communicate with them and tell him what the plans are and what you think where you think the team is going and and what we should put in place to make sure we bring the situation back to normal. And that I didn't do it the way I should have done it at the time. But apart from that, we had a, a great relationship. I consider we're friends. You know, I can pick up to it, the phone to him any time uh, to these days. And uh, he can pick up the phone to me any time as well. Uh, but, the, but the time I was there, apart from the last month, you know, when I was asked to leave, we had a, we had a terrific relationship. Why do you think it went wrong? I mean, what, 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 I mean, obviously, what, what happened with the Ramos and everything, we know. But why do you think it went wrong towards the end? Oh, for several factors. The first one is the one I just mentioned. So I, I forgot to keep the the relationship going with Daniel and the communication channel going with going on with Daniel, which I should have done, and explain why we were we were you know in a hole and how we were going to get out of it. Um, and why I thought we were in it, um, et cetera, et cetera. So com- communicating when things are going well and things were going well for, for many seasons, um, it's easy. Communicating when things are not going well is not only not easy, but it's crucial. Uh, and in, in this, I failed to do it properly. Uh, the other aspect to it is Wanda um, Ramos came in uh, turned things around very quickly. We won the Carling Cup. You know, it's the first trophy the club had won for many years. And since then, you know, it was 2008. Unfortunately, they, they, they haven't won any trophies since then. Since then. Um, but he turned things around. We won a trophy. But then I didn't measure that between himself and most of the squad, especially the younger players, the young British players, there was a massive culture gap that he was not able to bridge. He was expecting the players to bridge it, but you know he should have bridged that gap and he should have showed better understanding towards the young players and the, lo- the young talents we had. Um, so that's, one, that's another reason why things went south. And I should have stepped in. I should have seen it. I should have spotted it. Uh, so part of it is my fault. Uh, and, and the reason is, I didn't spot it is because I took my, my eyes off the ball from a day-to-day running of the team because I was so upset and focused on recruitment, on trying to build a competitive team for the season after that I actually forgot to focus on the current season, which is the job of the manager. But as a director of football, when you see, when you see that things are not going well, you need to ask. You need to step in. You need to give a hand to the manager. You need to report to the board. 
you need to help the manager find solutions uh, or you need to tell the board, look, he's not the right person and we need to move on. And all those things, because I was so focused, recruitment focused at the time, I missed the other part, which, which was crucial. Um, and coming back, <coughs> coming back to communication aspect, I think I also fell into the aspect of, you know, play, people were talking to Daniel all the time, you know, this Modric is too small, this player is not good, and that player will never make it, and you got it wrong with Bell, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And those comments for me were so stupid and made no sense that I didn't even try to counter them to Daniel. And I should have said to Daniel, look, Modric will be all right, Bell will be all right, so-and-so will be all right. You know, we've got very good players. They they come through. We just need to, to help them to settle in the team. Um, but instead of doing that, I kind of, kept, you know, stayed to my shell, my shell, because well, there is one thing I forgot, which is the golden rule for both football directors. And I always say that to the young people who start or people to me advise, ask me for advice. I always tell them, you are only as good as your last signing. And your credibility stops with the last signing. Yep. So if you got the, your last signing wrong or something is not going well, forget all the good things you did before yep. and, and put your foot down and your head down because people around you, they forgot the good things you did. Mm -hmm. So you need to convince them and re remind them that actually you did some do good work. But the work you did will not speak for yourself. You need to express yourself. You need to communicate. Um, and if you don't establish that crucial crisis management channel of communication, then you won't survive. And for me, that was a big lesson, a big learning process. Following um, Tottenham, you had a spell at St Etienne in France before returning to, to the UK with Liverpool. Two-part question, Damien, so please bear with me. Um, you worked with Kenny Dalglish, who, in his time in football, had been a director of football himself. Did that help your relationship with Kenny? And also, what was the atmosphere like around the club when Fernando Torres was leaving? Because obviously he left, and then quite quickly afterwards, Luis Suarez and Andy Carroll arrived at the club. So just what was the atmosphere like at the club at that time? Uh, the answer to your first question, uh, yes, it did help. Kenny and I had a great relationship. Um, and we still talk, you know, to these days. Um, uh, I think he, he, because he did the job at Celtic, uh, I think John Barnes was the manager or the head coach for part of the time with Kenny was the director of football at Celtic. So he, he understood the job well. And I, I remember, you know, him taking questions from journalists in the press conference where they were, you know, trying to find out if there was, uh, if Kenny and I were not seeing eye to eye or if we were not aligned. And I remember he said something, he said, look, football has changed so much and the game has become so global. There is no way a manager can do what I used to do as Kenny Gbagish, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago when I was the manager of Liverpool or Blackburn. It's just impossible. You know, the market is global. The, mar the football industry never sleeps. You know, when you go to sleep in... In, in London, uh, you get calls you, you, at 11 or midnight, you get calls from Asia because they are waking up and you get calls from America or South America because they are starting to work. So it never stops. 
Um, and he understood that very quickly. I told him I was here to make his life easier, that I will, you know, try to take as much problems from him as I could. And I think he, I mean, no, I think he understood that very early in our working relationship. And I think we, we both enjoyed working together. You know, we won a trophy, we got in the same season, and then we got to the final of the FA Cup as well. Uh, the league form was not great, but you know, winning, winning, getting to two finals, winning, winning a trophy um, was not that bad. Um, and then, and then I've got a funny story about that because one day, I think it was deadline day. I can't remember which one. Um, and and every time we were doing a deal, so we were, you know, selling a player or terminating a player's contract or loaning a player um, to another club. I was texting him. Kenny, you know, I was in the office and Kenny was at home and I was saying, we are done doing this, we are doing this and this is happening, this is not happening. And then I remember texting him and saying to him, you know, we're terminating, we ter- just terminated this player's contract. And then straight away he calls. I said, Kenny, what's going on? He said, no, no, I, I, no, I, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. <laughs> I said, I thought you wanted the player to go. He said, no. He said, if it's not Scott Fox News, breaking news, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I said, Kenny, we'll make sure it's on Scott Fox News, breaking news, and then you'll be delighted. So he told me five minutes later, he said, I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so that, that's the type of relationship we had. And, I, you know, I think he, he enjoyed uh, the the fact that he had he could focus only on yeah. players management and game management and training. Listen, um, there's about three hundred questions I haven't got to ask you, so uh, I I would really love to get you back sometime and do a second part of this. I've got two two questions I want to finish up with because uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I but I genuinely would love to get you back because this is fascinating insight to people like ourselves who love the game and uh, really interested to see what goes on behind the scenes. But um. Obviously, COVID affects this market um, this summer. Um, so I'm asking you, what do you think, if you were, were to name one or two, what do you think will be the big signings that happen this summer? And for you personally, what does the future hold for you? Because rumours that Manchester United are interested in a director of football, is that a job that would interest <laughs> you? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I think that it's going to be a very, a very strange market. Uh, they, I think they, they are they are going to be a few marquee signings, um, you know, somewhere between eighty and and, and north of a hundred million, mm-hmm. maybe one or two uh, or three. I don't think there'll be there'll be much more than that. Uh, for, so typically, the the Juventus Barcelona deal involving two players. You know, they, they they came up with big PR figures, mm-hmm. but if you look at the deal in detail, there's only a few a few million of euros that has been exchanged between yeah. the two clubs, and clubs are short of cash. Clubs are, you know, it's been well publicised that a lot of clubs had to to loan and lend money from banks and from government. Um, so a few clubs have got money. The clubs that have got money, if they use it well, are going to kill the market. Um, because if you have cash when nobody else has cash and everyone else needs cash, then you'll be in a position to to do some very, very, very good deal, providing you are calm, you are disciplined, you stick with your business model, you stick with your culture as a club, mm-hmm. um, and that you make the right decision. So that's why it's going to be a strange market. 
um, the law club will be inactive. That I can guarantee you, law club will be inactive, including the Premier League. Um, and then I, to answer your second part of the question, um, well, the, the speculation can end because I, I've joined the, I've joined the, uh, a club last week uh, oh. in Toulouse, in France, in oh, the south of France. Congratulations. Uh, so we we bought uh, we bought the club uh, with a, a U.S. investment fund called uh, Redbird Capital Partners, uh, and I'm now in a different role. I'm the I'm the, I'm the chairman of the board of the club. Um, oh, so it's a great challenge because it's the fourth biggest club uh, city in France. Yeah, very dynamic, demographically very dynamic, economically very dynamic city. Uh, with a big rebuilding job ahead of us. Uh, the people at Redbird are great people, fantastic people to work with. They were kind enough to offer me the job and to give me the opportunity to be the chairman of Toulouse. So new adventure, new job, uh, a lot of new things for me to think about and to worry about because the scope of the job is different. Uh, but I'm, I'm delighted and very excited to, uh, to have joined Toulouse. Uh, in this new capacity. That is wonderful. I mean, and I, uh, I would really love to get you back to also to talk about that. Uh, I'd really love to learn more about that. I'll, um, um, I'll, I'll drop you an email, and if you're available sometime in the next week or so, I'd love to love to chat with you about it. I am so grateful for you coming on to do this. This is incredibly kind of you. This has been a fascinating 40 minutes of your time. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Beyond the Pitch, Damien. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. If I can come back in the next few weeks or the next uh, the next few months, uh, it will be with pleasure. That would be wonderful. Come back on the show. Thank you so much, Damien. Thank Dami. you very much. Take care, my friend. Bye bye.